Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. You can find your place there this morning, Luke chapter 1. And it's obviously Christmas season. We have several folks that were up here Thursday evening and decorated this worship center and made it look so wonderful and beautiful as it is. I want to thank them. And I don't know exactly who it was, how many, so I'm just generically saying thank you to all of you who helped out and do so every year. I'm going to begin a, a series this morning, uh, working through the first two chapters of the book of Luke as we talk about and emphasize the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his birth, his incarnation, and all the things that pointed to that. And so we're going to begin a series this morning uh, that I've entitled Great Joy for All. But before we get there, I want to set things up because I want to speak to a specific subject every single Sunday leading up to Christmas Eve and then uh, Christmas Eve evening. So we're going to have five messages in this. But this morning, uh, we're going to talk about the forerunner of Jesus. We're going to talk about John the Baptist. Many of you remember 1963, the pop singer Andy Williams and his album. He was pretty popular at that time. In 1963, he recorded and released his first Christmas album, which was very cleverly entitled The Andy Williams Christmas Album. And he thought long and hard about this title, I'm sure. But uh, that Christmas album was and is to this day a very phenomenal, wonderful album with songs like White Christmas and Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, The First Noel, and Away in a Manger. And then also included in that album is one of my favorite Christmas songs and probably one of your favorite Christmas songs, and that is It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. I love that song. It's one of those songs that helps get me into the Christmas spirit. And let's be honest, most of us need to get or have some help to get us into the Christmas spirit, right? And we need some encouragement. We need some help to get into the Christmas spirit. And some of you may think I'm Scrooge. I promise you I'm not Scrooge, but I'm just a normal person. I need some some help. I need something to kickstart me into the Christmas spirit at times. And the reason for that is because Christmas, the season, seems to keep getting bumped up further and further into the year. And so I love Christmas. It's my favorite time of the year. I mean, that song uh, really speaks true for my view of Christmas. I just like to, I like to celebrate Christmas at Christmas, right? I don't like celebrating Christmas in September. But you go into the, some of the main box stores. You, you walk into maybe even some of the smaller stores in late September. And what do you see? Christmas. We didn't even got to Halloween yet, but we got Christmas stuff plastered all through Home Depot and Lowe's and all these other stores. You get into Halloween type uh, time of the year, and you begin to hear Christmas music on the radio. I remember just this last month, I got in my truck at 3.30 a.m. on a Monday morning, the first week of, of November, and I'm headed to Kentucky. I'm getting an early start. I'm driving to Kentucky for my hunting trip that I went on, and, and I turn on the radio to make sure I can stay awake. I got my coffee. I got everything I need to stay awake, and all of a sudden, what's on the radio? Christmas music, first week of November. I mean, I love Christmas music, but that's not what I wanted to hear the first week of November. You go into the stores at that time of the year, and it's all about the Christmas music, getting you into the swing of things. I think they try to, to brainwash us to buy stuff. I really think that's what it's all about from a commercial standpoint. I mean, it's three weeks away from Christmas. It's three weeks away, I should say, from Thanksgiving when I'm hearing these Christmas songs. But I do love... Christmas. I love this holiday, holiday, but I like to observe, like you probably, one holiday 
at a time. I want to savor. Just like when you go to a steakhouse, you want to eat slowly because you want to savor every morsel of that wonderful, juicy $50 steak that you're purchasing. Right? You want to savor it. I want to savor each and every holiday before moving on to the next. And so uh, it's all about preparation. It's about prepping up or getting yourself ready for the upcoming holiday. And so when we think about preparation, preparation is a process, right? As we get ready for Christmas, it's a process. And prepping for Christmas is a big deal around my house. It's a big deal probably around your house. And we all go about it probably a little bit different, but I bet we have some similarities, right? We got to go up into the attic. We got to drag down the Christmas decorations. We got to pull out that Christmas tree and put it up. And that's what I did yesterday morning. Uh, We hadn't put our Christmas tree up. I know it sat in our dining room for a whole week, but we hadn't put it up yet. And so yesterday I put it up and turned it on, made sure the lights were on. Notice I got a few bulbs that are out, so I got to figure out how to, to fix those. But that's part of the process. And then you begin to decorate the house and put lights on the house. Dad's got to play Clark Griswold and try not to spend the, e- the evening in the ER. Mom and kids are decorating the tree and inside the house and baking cookies and cu- Christmas music playing. And maybe you're drinking and sipping hot chocolate or cider or whatever it is that you do at your house. But we all have a process, something that helps us to get ready, to get into the spirit, and to move toward this beautiful and wonderful celebration. But when we prepare, it takes time, right? You don't just open the, I wish it was this way. I really was thinking the other day, why can't we just hire somebody to set everything up for Christmas? Oh, wait, we didn't have to mess with it. I just one day uh, say, you know what, I want Christmas decorations up, and somehow, magically, in eight hours, somebody has come in and done it for us. Wouldn't that be beautiful? It would be wonderful from my standpoint, because I absolutely detest putting up decorations. I just, it's too tedious for me. I don't want to be a part of it. And so I would like for someone else to do it, but that's not going to happen around my house. So the process is going to take time and I need to come to a realization and an understanding from that standpoint that preparation is all about the process. But when we do all these things, it probably leads us to ask a question. Why are we doing this? In other words, what is Christmas really all about? Let me share with you a couple thoughts here. Our Eugene Sterner said this about Christmas. Christmas is when God came down the stairs of heaven with a baby in his arms. That's a pretty good statement. I like that. C.S. Lewis said the Son of God became man to enable men to become sons of God's. The Son of God became a man so that the men, the human beings on earth could become sons of God, children of God. Of God. What is Christmas all about? It's about that. It's about us coming into relationship with the Lord. The angel Gabriel told those shepherds out on the countryside outside of Bethlehem one night in Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. He says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What's Gabriel saying to these shepherds that night? What he's doing is he's revealing to them that God the Son had been born into the race of men so that they could become sons of God. He says that this is good news. And not only is it just good news, it's good news for all people. And that's what we're going to talk about this month as we celebrate Jesus. We're going to talk about how this good news, this message of Jesus, this message of God coming to us is not just for you and I. It is for all people. 
You know, as we celebrate Christmas every year as Southern Baptists, we also emphasize Lottie Moon. And the reason we emphasize Lottie Moon is because the gospel is not just for us to hold and celebrate and, and kind of pet like our wonderful little, little kitten here. It's not just for us to hold and to handle and to, and to kind of fondle over. It's for the whole world to celebrate and to know. It's good news for all the people. So what is Christmas all about? It is a season whereby we celebrate the birth of God. It's the season whereby we celebrate the fact that God came to us. And so as we prepare for Christmas, we're not really preparing for Christmas, the the day as much as we're preparing for the Savior. Gabriel here in Luke chapter 1 we see was sent to prepare the people. All through these, this uh, Christmas account in Luke chapters 1 and 2, we see Gabriel speaking to people and preparing the people. In Luke chapter 2, he's sent to prepare the shepherds for the Savior that was just born in Bethlehem. Gabriel was sent also to Mary to prepare her for the Savior that she would carry and give birth to. Likewise, he first came to a priest named Zechariah, there in the temple in chapter 1, and he spoke to him about a son that his wife would have who would be the forerunner to Jesus, the Savior. He was preparing them for what was coming. And today as we begin this Christmas season, I want to talk to you about how we can prepare, how we should be preparing for the Savior. This series I've entitled, as I said, Joy for All. And so over the next four Sundays, we're going to walk through these two chapters, and we're going to look at how Jesus' coming brings joy to our hearts, but also to all of the world. Look with me in Luke chapter 1. We're going to read a good amount of scripture this morning, beginning in verse 5. We're going to look at John the Baptist and his coming. Luke tells us these words in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Does that sound familiar at all? Sounds like an Old Testament story about to unfold. Verse 8, now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by law to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Notice I didn't say his wife's old. I think that's humorous. That's just a little bit, dude's smart right there. I'm old guy. My wife, mm, she's not, she's, yeah. Verse 19, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended... He went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray that you take these words this morning and speak to us. God, help us to see how to prepare our hearts and our lives for the Savior. Help us to to see and to understand how we can better prepare us as a church collectively during this season. And Lord, help us to be reminded that Christmas isn't just about us. It's not about me. It's about the entire world knowing that there is a Savior who has been born, who is Christ the Lord. So Lord, bless your word this morning. Speak to us mightily. In Jesus' name, amen. As you probably know, the man who wrote this gospel is Luke. Luke was a follower of Jesus Christ. He was a physician by trade. He traveled a great deal with the Apostle Paul. And he wrote his gospel as well as the book of Acts, uh, this two-volume set, for a man by the name of Theophilus. Theophilus was probably a Roman official. He was most likely a recent convert to Christ. And Luke here is writing. His desire is to establish Theophilus' faith in the gospel. He wants him to understand the, 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 the gospel, the, the doctrine that he's been taught, that he has put his faith in. And so in this gospel, Luke's emphasis is on the universality of Jesus Christ and his salvation. Now, Luke's not going to say that, that, that Jesus came to save all. He's come to, he, he says that Jesus came and his sacrifice is sufficient for all, that Jesus desires for all to be saved. Red, yellow, black, and white, they're all precious in his sight is what we learned when we were children. So Luke is writing to contend that the good news of Jesus Christ brings great joy for all people. When Gabriel here in the beginning of this passage visited Zechariah there in the temple in Jerusalem, we need to remember and and understand that this was a dark day in the history of Israel. Israel had heard nothing from the Lord for 400 plus years. I mean, God has been silent ever since the prophet, the days of the prophet of Malachi. And so when when the angel here comes to the temple and begins to speak to Zechariah, this was a new thing that God was doing in the life of Israel. They had heard nothing. The spiritual leaders, therefore, were shackled by tradition. And in many ways, in many instances, they were shackled by corruption. I mean, the king of Israel, Herod the Great, was nothing more than a tyrant. Church history tells us that he had nine, maybe ten wives. He had executed one for no apparent reason. He was a wicked man. We know from the, 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 uh, the story of Jesus and his birth that when those wise men came looking for the Savior who had been born, Herod took that as an offense. He was threatened by that, and so he ordered that every young boy be killed within a certain age because that was the type of man he was. This was a dark day in the day and age of Israel. Sentiment then in Israel was that the Holy Spirit had ceased to move in the land. 
And therefore, there was a deep longing for the coming of the promised Messiah. They had not heard from God, but they knew that God had spoken in the past. And so there were many who longed for a a new day in the history of Israel. They were longing for what the prophets had prophesied and preached would come true and come to fruition. Luke introduces us here to this priest whose name is Zechariah. Tells us here that he was married to a woman by the name of Elizabeth. And Luke tells us that this man and this woman were blameless and righteous before God. Now that's not to say that they were sinless. Luke's not saying that Zechariah and Elizabeth were sinless people. No, he's not saying that at all. In fact, we see Zechariah's sin even in the midst of this temple. When he says, how shall this be? He's not demonstrating faith in what God is telling him is going to happen. So this was not a sinless man. This man was a sinful man. And yet he had a heart for God. He was righteous before the Lord. He was unlike the Pharisees that Luke would introduce us to later in his gospel. He believed God. He believed his word. He is a faithful man. Elizabeth, though, the Bible tells us, was barren, or we could say she was sterile. And both of them, we learn, were past the age of childbearing. And so what Luke is doing here is he's emphasizing the miracle that's going to take place. John's birth is not something that could have happened on its own because she was barren, and both of them were past the age of childbearing. That's going to stress the fact that this is something God is going to do that's fresh and new and only something that God could do in their lives. As a priest, we are learned here that Zechariah was serving in the temple. Now, we know that the priests served twice in a year. They would serve for a week at a time and come and do their duties there in Jerusalem. We learn in the scriptures that the priests were divided into 24 divisions. There were about 18,000 priests serving in Israel during this day. And so they would, they would divide it up in these 24 divisions. They would serve twice a year. And, and not, they would do different duties when they came to serve in the temple area. And, and they would draw lots for who would go into the, the temple court area, the inner sanctum area, and offer the incense offering. They would do it by lot. And the Bible tells, tells us here that Zechariah's name was sovereignly drawn by lot. Zechariah had this opportunity, a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go in and to serve in this capacity, to bring the bread and to put there on the table. Zechariah was an amazing man. There in that temple, Gabriel appeared to him. And as you would expect, Zechariah was scared stiff. Can you imagine you just kind of taking care of business, doing whatever you normally do, and, and all of a sudden an angel of the Lord is standing in front of you. What would you do? What would your response be? I'd probably fall out dead, probably like Zechariah wanted to do. That's what happens. The Bible says he was scared stiff. I mean, Zechariah believed in God. Zechariah longed for God to move once again. Zechariah even expected God to move, but because God had been silent for so long, it shouldn't, uh, it shouldn't surprise us that, that Zechariah was astonished by what was taking place. It shouldn't surprise us that Zechariah didn't expect God to answer him on this particular day. We do this same thing in our own lives. We pray for things. We ask for things. We are people who believe God, but yet even as we pray and believe God, we don't always truly completely believe God. So he's scared when he sees this angel standing before him. Zechariah was gripped with fear 
also because of the fact that the angel was standing in front of him. And here we have this holy creature, this creature who stands in the presence of God, who bears some resemblance to the glory of God, is standing in his midst. And every time in Scripture you see an angel coming before people, what happens? What's the response of the people? They mistake the angel for God. And so the angel must have shown the Shekinah glory of the Lord. And so he's fearful. But Gabriel, in verse 13, reassures him. He says, do not be afraid. And then he goes on to say that God has heard your prayer, Zechariah. I mean, think about this. He's, he sees this incredible holy creature standing before him, and, and he's, he's scared stiff. He's scared out of his mind because he sees a, a resemblance of God Almighty. And then these reassuring words come to him. Zechariah, don't be fearful. Don't be afraid. God has heard your prayer. How many times have you prayed and asked God to do something in your life? And you, you, Just be honest. Let's just be honest. Just you and I today. You didn't really think that God heard you. But what if the angel came and said, God heard your prayer last night. What would that do to you? I bet it would bolster your faith a little bit, wouldn't it? Now, we know, we know theologically, we know doctrinally that God hears our prayers. He, he hears everything in our life. He hears a, the, 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 the thoughts in our minds, he knows. And that's, it's, this would have brought great comfort to Zechariah to hear that Zechariah's prayer had been heard by Almighty God. That raises a question. What prayer? What prayer has Zechariah been praying? Was it a prayer that he was praying at that moment in the temple? Was it something that he and his wife had been praying about? What is the prayer that God has heard? We learn from the text here because he goes on and says that your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And so the obvious prayer that he had been praying, he and his wife had been praying was, God, give me a son. Give me an heir that's going to carry on the family name. Take away our reproach, God. Now, I doubt they were praying this prayer Right now, I bet this was a prayer they'd prayed early on in life. You see, they got to a place when they got to a certain age that they probably no longer prayed for a son because they just saw that it's impossible. It's not going to happen. I'm 40 plus. God, it's not going to happen. I'm going to pray about something else. But God heard that prayer maybe as a 20-year-old, a 25-year-old, a 30-year-old, and God comes later through Gabriel and speaks to him and says, the Lord has heard your prayer. Perhaps because these this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were godly and righteous followers of Jesus or followers of the Lord. I got to believe that the prayer that they prayed probably on a daily basis was, Lord, take away the reproach of our people. Take away the reproach of our nation. Lord, Lord, do something in our midst. Bring the Messiah. Bring the anointed one. Visit us once again. And so I believe that that was the prayer that, that Zechariah and Elizabeth were praying. I also believe that, that they had been praying early on in their adult life, praying for children, praying that her womb would be open. And on this occasion, as Gabriel stands there in the temple before them, he answers both questions or answers both prayers. God, can we ever have a child? Yes. God, are you ever going to bring your Messiah? Yes. And I'm going to answer it to you in the same way. Your, son, your daughter Elizabeth, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. And that son is going to be named John. And he's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah that you have longed for for so long. You're, he's going to be the forerunner of the one that I prophesied and spoke of through the prophets for years and years. And the one that the people of Israel are longing for. It is going to happen. His name will be John. Now, is there anything significant about the name John? There's a lot of people named John in this world. Do you know that John means Yahweh has been gracious? 
What a wonderful name. The name John. Yahweh has been gracious. What, what, what God is saying here through Gabriel is this. What I'm about to do as I bring the Messiah is nothing but the grace of God working itself out into your lives. The grace of God was going to usher in the Savior of the world. And so Zechariah's response in verse 18 we see is unbelief. It's disbelief. He says, how shall this be? How shall I know this? I'm nothing more than an old man. My wife and I are advanced in years. How can this possibly take place? I need a sign. You see, he couldn't understand how two sterile senior adults could possibly have a child. And Gabriel's response was that Zechariah would be mute, probably deaf, as we learn later on a couple chapters, uh, until John was born. His muteness was both punitive because of his lack of faith, and yet at the same time, it was gracious because it was a sign he requested. Lord, I don't know how this is going to happen. Give me a sign. Oh, I'll give you a sign. But it's going to be a little bit of a judgment because you didn't believe me. But it's also going to be gracious because I'm going to grant your request. And so he goes out of the temple and the people were gathered around because the, temp, the, the priest would typically uh, pronounce a blessing over the people as they've been praying there as he's been in the temple. And he comes out and he's unable to speak. In fact, I believe he's also unable to even hear. He can't communicate in any way. And so they recognize something has happened to Zechariah when he's in the temple. Which is amazing to me because they hadn't had any activity with the Lord for 400 plus years. They didn't know anything about what could happen like that. And yet they recognize something took place in Zechariah's life as he was in the temple. Surely he has seen a vision. So what was the purpose of all of this. Why did Gabriel visit Zechariah in the temple? Why did he promise a son to be born to them? What is the message here? We see in verse 17 that as Gabriel talks about John who's going to be born, he says that he's going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And as we prepare for Christmas, how can we prepare for the Savior. I want to draw some implications. I want to point to some markers, some spiritual markers that ought to be evident in our life as a believer as we seek to prepare for the Savior, as we seek to prepare for Christmas. We're not preparing for a day. We're not preparing for that moment that we get to sit there underneath a tree and rip open presents. And it doesn't matter how old we are, we still enjoy that, right? Unless you are Scrooge, you like to sit there and open a present. Amen? Or am I the only person that is selfish? Thank you, Travis. I appreciate you helping me out there. But we don't prepare for that moment. I remember as a kid, man, it just seemed like Christmas dragged on. I mean, it seemed like summer was just... I mean, just laborious because Christmas was never coming. Now as an adult with children, uh, I feel like Christmas is like on December 25th and all of a sudden it's again the next day. It just happens that way. But I still enjoy... The moment we gather together and open presents, but that's not what Christmas is about. Christmas is about a Savior. It's about the ultimate gift that's been given to us. And so how do we prepare ourselves for the Savior? Let me share with you five spiritual markers as quickly as I can. First marker I think we, that we see here and I think should be evident in our life is this, vibrant prayer. We see in, in verse 10 that the people, the multitude, are praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, something you, you, you ought to recognize here is that a Lucan characteristic all throughout this gospel, all throughout this gospel that he's written here, is to point out that major events are associated with prayer. 
I mean, you look at the events in the life of Jesus, the life and ministry of Jesus, and you will see major moments taking place as a result of prayer. When people were gathering together to pray. What's happening in the Garden of Gethsemane? There is Jesus is taken to the cross. What are they doing? Praying. They're seeking the face of the Father. And so prayer is a big deal. Prayer in our life ought to be one of the greatest things that we're engaging in on a daily basis. We've said it this way. God's activity runs on the rails of the prayers of his people. God's activity runs on the rails of our prayers. And so it's like you know, his activity is the train. And if we're not praying, it has no track to run on. I mean, think about it. You, you search the scriptures, you will see that rarely in the word of God is God acting outside of the prayers of his people. I was thinking about this this week as I made that statement. The only time that I can think of off the top of my head in scripture where, well, I guess there's two, th- two times. Or in Genesis, in the very beginning when God created all that there is, there was none of us to pray, right? And so he acted alone. And then we see in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and fell, they were not praying and seeking God. In fact, they were running from God, and God comes and visits them. Outside of that, I can't think of any other time, maybe when Abraham was called. So there are some, some instances, but most of the time when God's moving and when he's active in the lives of his people or in the lives of those who are lost and without Christ, he has a people who are praying and seeking the face of God. Even at the end of the book of Malachi, when Malachi has spoken so harshly to the people of Israel and rebuked the religious leaders, we see in chapter 4 that there is a people who are gathering together, praying and encouraging one another, and the Lord is listening in. God's activity runs on the prayers of his people. We see it in scripture. We see it in church history. We, we could go back and, and search church history and learn that in nearly, if not every major revival and movement of God, there were people praying and seeking the heart and the face of God. And so as we prepare our families, as we prepare as a church, as we prepare individually for the Savior, let us be found in vibrant prayer. I like this statement that Sheila McAllister or Manchester says. She says, in my experience, the deeper one's prayer life is, the deeper one's commitment to Christ, and the deeper one's love for others. You see, as we pray, as we seek the face of God, as we deepen in our prayer life, we deepen in our commitment to the Lord. Second marker that needs to be evident in our life is this, genuine conversion. Verse 16, Gabriel is telling Zechariah a little bit about John's ministry, and he says in verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. The verb here translated turn in the English is a, is a, ter- is a verb that's a technical term that it usually is spoken of and translated in, in the context of conversion. In other words, when the gospel is preached, when the word of God is shared, th- this word is used to speak of people repenting and, and, and turning from sin and in faith turning to the Lord. It's conversion. It's redemption. John's mission then was to preach the gospel to the Jews. He was to preach the gospel to God's people. They were a faithful there are a few faithful Jews like Zechariah and Elizabeth in Israel, but the vast majority of, of Israel were lost and dead in sin and trespasses. Even the religious elite, elite were lost and without hope. And so John's mission, John's purpose was to prepare the people for the Savior by calling them to repentance and faith. That was his whole 
mission and ministries. He stood up there on the banks of the Jordan River. His preaching was this, repent and turn. Repent and prepare yourselves for the one who's coming after me. The one who's, I'm not even worthy to untie his own sandals. And this Christmas season, as we think about uh, preparing ourselves for the Savior, how tragic would it be to make all of our preparations for Christmas? How tragic would it be for us to pull down the decorations and put up the Christmas tree and hang the lights on the house and attend Christmas parties and come to church and sing in the choir and go out and sing Christmas carols and, and even come to a Christmas Eve service and yet miss the very point of Christmas. So as we prepare for the Savior, let us make sure that we're in relationship with Jesus. You've got to be in relationship with Jesus, otherwise this holiday means nothing to you. It's just a holiday. Genuine conversion ought to be a marker of our lives. Thirdly, we see here in verse 17 the idea of compassionate love. He says, and he, John, will go before him, speaking of the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Earlier, Nick mentioned how in the Christmas season, some folks have a hard time because this is a lonely time. You see, it should be a time together with friends. It should be a time together with family. And for most of us, it is. But it's also a time of loneliness. It's a time where we struggle for various reasons. You see, too many families will celebrate Christmas this year splintered and separated. Because something this year or maybe in years past has happened between mom and dad or something that's happened between dad and the son or mom and the daughter or brother and sister and uncle or grandpa. Something has happened in the family that's caused it to be splintered, caused the family to be separated. So rather than gathering together in love and, and, and friendship and, and, and compassion, the family is splintered and separated. Maybe some families... There's mourning because as you prepare for Christmas this year, grandpa's not going to be there. Mom's not going to be in the kitchen fixing the ham. Disease is set into your family. And so this year, rather than gathering together and celebrating like you normally would, someone's going to be very sick because of chemotherapy or radiation or whatever it may be. So this year, Christmas celebrations are different. This year, they're heartbreaking. But we see here in this passage that even in the midst of heartbreak, even in the midst of separation, even in the midst of splintered, fractured families, there is hope. Gabriel said that through John's ministry, fathers would turn compassionately and, and, and lovingly toward their children. You see, Christian, as you prepare for the Savior, make sure you model compassionate love, the compassionate love of Jesus to your family. And if your family is fractured, work to put it back together. Do everything that you can to put your family back together. Humble yourself if you've hurt someone. Go to that person. Go to those folks. Ask for forgiveness. Do what's necessary to make sure that you're bringing the family together in compassionate love. If someone has hurt you, humble yourself. Rather than, 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 than scoffing, rather than, than, than thrusting your nose up in the air and, and, and just getting hot and heavy over what's happened to you, humble yourself, forgive the one who has hurt you, and seek reconciliation. Show love to those who have lost loved ones during this season. Show love to those who are hurting and struggling for various reasons. As we prepare for the Savior, let's love others like Jesus. But let's not just... Uh, confine it to the season of Christmas. That ought to be the practice of our life. 
as followers of Jesus. There's a fourth marker, and that is complete obedience. He goes on to say in verse 17 that he's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so the message of Christmas, again, is that God has come to save people from their sins. Think about that for a second. Jesus has come to save you and I from our sins. How dare we, how can we hold on to sin when we know we've been freed from it? That's what got me thinking as I was driving to the office this morning. We were listening and there was a Christmas song on the radio and and they were just celebrating what Jesus has done. And I thought about that. Sometimes as Christians, we can't worship the way we ought to. We can't appreciate the word as we ought to. Because we have forgotten how heinous our sin really is. We've forgotten what we were like before Jesus changed us. We've forgotten that our sin separates us from God. We've forgotten that our sin gives us uh, uh, mandates that we be thrown into an eternal hell, the, the place of judgment for the devil himself. We forget how awful and despicable we really were before Jesus changed us. And so we need to understand that our sin is a grievous crime against the holy God who created us for himself. So how dare we hold on to sin while celebrating the fact that we are free from sin. The truth is you cannot do it. Gabriel said John's ministry would turn, would be to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. They would become obedient to the word of God, in other words. And that's what happened. As John preached repentance, as he called the people to faith, they gave up their former sins and they began to walk in obedience, longing and looking for the Messiah who was just around the corner. Complete obedience ought to be the practice of our life. So as we prepare for the Savior, is there an area of your life that is disobedient? Is there something God has called you to that you've refused to do? Something that the Lord this year has said, I want this to be a practice in your life. I want you to, to serve in this way. I want you to give this. I want you to do that. And for whatever reason, you've said no up to this point. As you prepare for the Savior, say yes to whatever that is. Become obedient in that area. Is it your finances? I mean, so many people, I don't understand why, what it is about giving, that so many people will, will reject that one simple teaching of Scripture, and, and they'll plead something completely foreign to Scripture because they do not want to give as the Lord's told them to give. And so I've unapolog unapologetically said from the very beginning, the Bible clearly teaches that the tithe is the first tenth. It belongs to the Lord. It's the place to begin in your giving, and above and beyond that is an offering to the Lord as you I feel the Lord's leading you to do, but you ought to give at least the tenth. Be faithful in that area. Is it marital fidelity? Is there something in your life that's wrong, something in your marriage that's not right? Get it right. Become obedient. Is it your devotional life? I mean, how many of you are, are walking with the Lord Jesus on a daily basis? How many of you are reading and praying and seeking the face of God? Or, the only time you, or is the only time that you get any part of the Word of God is when you're here on a Sunday? That ought not, not to never be the case. This, ought to just be, this is like the pep rally to help you <clears throat> to get ready for the week. This shouldn't be your only time you eat during this week. I guarantee you that you will eat tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, and then you'll eat next Sunday, right? None of us only eat once a week. We're Americans. We get at least three square meals and, and probably four snacks throughout the day. Some of you are getting ten snacks, I can tell. I'll... I'll I'll raise my hand from that standpoint. 
And yet, when it comes to our spiritual life, how many of us are so spiritually famished because the only time we eat from God's Word is when you hear it from me or your small group leader? And you wonder why God's not moving in your life like you want Him to. It leads us to a fifth and final marker, and that is simple faith. Verse 18, we see that Zechariah's response was, How shall I know this? I'm an old man, and my wife and I are past the years of childbearing. Verse 20, the angel responds and says, You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. In no way, as Christians, should we be a, bu- should we be a bunch of simpletons. But as Christians, we should have simple faith. Jesus, when the children wanted to come to him and the disciples were preventing them, he kind of got a little perturbed with his disciples and told them not to prevent the children from coming to them, for such is the kingdom, right? What does that mean, such is the kingdom? He's saying that, that we must come to him in childlike faith, simple faith, believe in him at face value, not trying to... to, to, to figure out the deep truths of it, but just simple, basic, ordinary faith. That ought to be the the marker of our lives in Christ. It simply means that we believe God and we take him at his word. Zechariah here asked this question, how shall I know? What he had heard, think about this, was beyond belief. We would probably ask the same question. Lord, how in the world is this going to happen? Mary asked a very similar question when when Gabriel comes to her. How is this going to happen? I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. How am I possibly going to get pregnant? Physiologically, it's impossible. What Zechariah is saying is this. Physiologically, it's impossible. We're past the age. And yet he should have believed God. Zechariah couldn't grasp the thought, even though he knew it could be true. You see, Zechariah knew the stories of Abraham and Sarah. Remember that story in Genesis? Abraham also was a man very similar to Zechariah. His wife was barren. They were past the age of childbearing, and there was no heir for them. And, and, and yet God had made this promise that you're going to be the father of nations. The nations are going to be blessed from you. And he's, he's wrestling with this. How is this going to happen? And yet God came and spoke and touched Sarah, and she bore a child. He knew the stories of Samson's parents there in Judges 13 where Samson's parents also had no child. and The angel came and spoke and, 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 and there was a son who was born and everything that the angel had said of Samson came true. He knew the story of Elkanah and Hannah. Elkanah and his wife Hannah, the, the, the second wife, she's barren, she has no children. She's in anguish before the Lord. She's praying and fasting, asking the Lord to give her a son. And who was born to Hannah? Samuel. Zechariah knew these stories. He knew that what Gabriel was telling them, him there in the temple could happen. And yet, at the same time, he didn't believe. He didn't believe that God could or would do it in his life. As we think about the gospel, the gospel is very simple. And yet it's so profound. That's why Jesus said, don't prevent the children from coming to me, for such is the kingdom. It's because it is a simple message, but it is a profound message as well. It is so simple a child can believe. It's so profound that you'll never reach its depths. And so as we prepare for the Savior, let's be a people who simply believe every word on every page as God's word. Let's have simple faith. Let's do what God asks of us. It is all that's required for salvation. Let's confess our sin. Let's believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And let's put our faith in his work on the cross for us. Again, what a tragedy it would be as we go through Christmas and celebrate all this and miss what Christmas is all about. Simple faith.
that there was a God, I should say it this way, that there is a God who loved you so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe would not perish but have eternal life in him. That's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. It's a season of ceremony. It's a season of pageantry. It's a season of celebration. We will gather with families. We will gather with friends. We will feast together. Can I get an amen? We exchange presents. We want to bless one another. We focus on those who are less fortunate. We even spend more time in corporate worship than usual. And some of us will come on a Sunday evening, Christmas Eve, which typically we're not in church on Sunday evening, right? So we'll worship a little bit more corporately. We'll do all these things that are a little bit out of the norm than our usual routine. We do all of this to celebrate. We do all of this to commemorate the coming of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Gabriel told Zechariah that John's purpose was to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Today, are you a, are you a prepared follower of Jesus? Are you a prepared person ready for the Savior? In other words, are you in a relationship with Jesus? I ask this question every single Sunday as I, offer an, as I offer an invitation. And I understand I'm speaking to mostly followers of Jesus. I'm speaking to disciples. But I also believe that there are, are people in the church and every church in the, in the world who think they're going to heaven but will miss it. I was that person. I've told you over and over again. I was that person. I was a religious kid for, for a good many years in my young life. Two quiet times a day, serving in my student ministry, leading people to Jesus, doing what you're supposed to do, looking the, the way you're supposed to look as a good Christian, a good Southern Baptist. And yet I knew all the time that I was lost and would split hell wide open if I'd have died. So today I know I'm speaking to some who are not in relationship with Jesus. I can't think of a better time to come into relationship with Jesus than when we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. And So this morning as we move into an invitation time, the invitation is for you. If that's you... I want to encourage you to be so bold this morning to step out into the aisle and come down here and say, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. I'll get you with someone who can help you make that decision in your life, to repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. It's not the walking into the aisle. It's not taking me by the hand. It's none of that stuff. It's you simply saying, I want to turn from sin and turn to Jesus Christ. So as we move into this time of invitation, is that you this morning? Or maybe as a follower of Jesus, you need to prepare your heart better. There's something in your life that's not right. There's some sin that you're holding on to. There's something not right in your family. And so as you prepare yourselves and your family for, for Christmas, for the Savior, there's some things that you need to do to bring unity and harmony and peace to your home. So I can't think of a better time to get right with Jesus and to help your family get right than the season of Christmas. Lord Jesus, this morning, I thank you for sending John the Baptist, this forerunner of the Messiah. Thank you for how you miraculously predicted his coming as you laid out his mission and his calling there to Zechariah, his father. Lord, we see in his life, we see in his purpose, these markers that ought to be evident in our life. God, this morning, I pray you'd help us to be a people who are fervent and vibrant in our prayer life. There's life there. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be a people who are in relationship with you, that we have repented of our sin and trusted you as Lord and Savior. 
God, I pray that compassionate love would be demonstrated in our lives, in our families, in our church. God, we would be a, a, an obedient people that completely obey you in everything you've said. And God, may we just be a simple people who by faith trust you. Lord, this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us to confess the areas of our lives that are sinful, to turn from those areas, and to walk in faith. Lead us in this time. Lord, I pray for that man, that woman, that teenager, that child who needs to put their faith in Jesus. God, may today be the day of salvation for them. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.